to begin to think about the supremacy of Christ. Because Jesus is a wonder worker. My aunt, my guide in India, the other Israel, said, uh, uh, was talking about miracles of Jesus. And he had no problem about talking about Jesus doing miracles. It made sense to him. Rabbis have done miracles. Are you with me? So if a rabbi's done a miracle and Jesus is a rabbi and he does miracles, that's not surprising. He's a holy man. But should I accord him all the, all the uh, honor that Christians do? And Hebrews is going to be addressing this issue. Another, one thing that makes this book so hard is the warning passages. <clears throat> because um, if, if, you were, if you were raised in a uh, uh, Wesleyan or, yeah, Wesleyan context, you were raised to believe that you could lose your salvation. And one of the chief passages you would use for this was the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. For it's impossible for one, those who have been once enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who have become, let's see, what's the third one? Um, well, that was the first one. The, the third one escapes me. Um, it's impossible for, for those who have been once enlightened, who have become partic- partakers of the Holy Spirit, is the way I was raised to read this, have uh, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and who fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Um, well, what would falling away mean except sinning so badly that you lose your salvation? I want to point out to you something, folks. Watch for this as you read through Hebrews. The great issue um, uh, in Hebrews is not obedience. It's it's a bit shocking. Um, I have a blog that I have followed in the past. The guy guy isn't active in the blog anymore. He's he's a good scholar. I I appreciate his work. Uh, And he said, uh, talking about Hebrews, he said, uh, the, the great message of Hebrews is to obey. And I thought, are you reading the same book I'm reading? Yeah, that, that doesn't. <laughs> and, and he's a good scholar, should know better. Um, but he didn't go to Dallas Seminary, so I can excuse that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, but you've got these, these um, uh, warning passages, which are critical. And if you look through that sheet I gave you, sorry, it's printed on blue. Uh, the uh, administrative assistant in the department was printing out some stuff on blue for another class, and, and uh, I kind of ran that in not knowing that she was doing this, and that's why it's on blue. It's a little harder to read. But you'll look uh, down one, I think it's maybe the third column, or maybe the second, I can't remember, and it says exhortation, teaching, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, there are a lot more exhortation sections in that than I have on the screen. But it's widely held that there are five major warning passages. And they start out kind of uh, gentle and get more severe as you go until you get to chapter 10. The uh, Chapter 10 is just really tough. If we sin willfully after having come to the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, um, oh, copy. But a... Uh, fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation that's about to devour those who are in opposition. 
So uh, they keep getting more, worse and worse until, frankly, until you get to chapter 12, um, um, verse 26, his voice then shook the earth. But now it is announced, saying, once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the, but the heavens, this once again, uh, and so on. In fact, look at verse 25, it's even better. Beware that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape uh, when they refused him uh, uh, who spoke on earth, how much more shall we who turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Are you with me here? These get pretty severe. You have to ask the question, well, what is the point? What are they, what, what's the author trying to tell us? And so uh, these warning sections are going to be a critical part of our whole discussion. The structure of the book, as I'm going to take it, is uh, really twofold. If you, if you go to chapter 10 at verse uh, 19, turn there to 1019. Uh, the first couple of verses, 19 and 20, uh, and 21, uh, summarize chapters 1 to, 1 to 10, 10, 18. So, having therefore brothers, boldness, do you remember boldness? Let us approach with boldness to the throne of grace, remember this? Um, having boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, which he inaugurated for us as a new and living way through the veil that is of his flesh, and a great priest over the house of God. So he's just summarized chapters 1 to 10, 18. Then in verse 22, he starts summarizing what's coming in the next section. So this is kind of a hinge passage um, that holds the two portions together. Are you with me? So the first portion, one, you know, for simplicity's sake, 1, 1 to 10, 18, is about the supremacy of Jesus. Uh, you have an introduction in 1, 1 to 4, and then the body really begins at verse 5, but 1, 1 to 4 is already talking about the supremacy of Jesus. Then from 10, 19 to someplace in chapter 13, and I still am not clear where that someplace is. I have it on the screen at 13, 16. You begin with the, the real exhortation. It's not warning now, it's exhortation. What, what do I need to know, what do I need to do in light of the supremacy of Jesus? You get it here? So, so uh, on the one hand, the supremacy of Jesus, then on the other hand, exhortation in light of that supremacy. Okay, what were you thinking? Okay. Okay. Uh, there are a couple of introductory issues. Who wrote it? I don't know. <laughs> when was it written? I don't know. Except probably before 70 A.D. Um, when you're talking in chapters... Uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, about the greatness of Jesus, his supremacy over the priesthood and the sacrifices and the tabernacle, um, it would have been a, been a great argument to say, and look, the temple's been destroyed anyway. But I want to point out something to you. The book never mentions the temple. It only mentions the tabernacle. This is a book for a, for a pilgrim people. Are you with me here? He casts, the author of Hebrews casts us in the same role as the generation coming out of Egypt. We're coming out, but we haven't gone in yet. Yes? And, and we must not fall afoul of what they fell afoul of, chapter 3 and 4, 
uh, their bodies fell in the, their, their corpses fell in the desert. Remember this passage? Uh, so we're, we're going someplace. We've got to be sure to get there, but how are we going to do it? Well, we're going to do it the same way they would have done it if they had obeyed. Or so we'll talk about that more. So if, if the temple was destroyed, it would have been a, a, a kind of a final argument. Look, there's nothing to go back to anyway. The sacrifices are all gone. The Sadducees, do, do you know this about the Sadducees? They were crucified along the road from Jerusalem to Joppa all the way. Uh, and the whole Sadducean caste was simply wiped out after 70 AD, after the destruction of the temple. That's why, probably that's why the Gospel of John never refers to the Sadducees by name, only by, by the scribes and, and uh, the priests and scribes, but, but he only talks about the Pharisees. Jim? As I was listening on tape to this today, on the way to work, I was thinking about authorship. Yeah. Is it possible, has anybody thought or uh, discussed this, is it possible that there may have been an introductory reading that might have been included as yeah, there, there, there are two ways to address that. Yes, they have. As a matter of fact, uh, Dan Wallace is one of our profs in the New Testament department. And, and Dan, I was just listening to a recording by him recently. He said letters were often written either with the, um, as, as Paul does, with the uh, authorship and, and recipients right at the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. You, you remember them, these or they were written with the addressee on the outside. And he said he has seen, and he's seen hundreds and hundreds, perhaps even thousands of manuscripts now, uh, papyrus manuscripts uh, where they were rolled up as scrolls, and you can see very faintly the inscription on the outside. But because it's on the outside, it gets worn off very quickly. So that's one way to answer the question. The other way to answer the question is, this is probably not a letter. It's probably a sermon. Um, in that regard, the best way to, to, to really um, uh, interact with Hebrews is to hear it. So, Jim, you're on the right track, brother. <laughs> to hear it rather than reading it. Yeah, Fred? The fact that he refers at the very end to Timothy coming from jail. Yeah. Is there anything known about when Timothy was in jail? No. I wish we did. Uh, the one thing I can say for certain, then, is the author is probably not Paul. And let me show you why. Turn to chapter 2 in verses 3 and 4. Um, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which began to be spoken through the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard? Do you remember Galatians 2? Galatians, even Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus not of men or by men or through men but through, are you with me there? yeah yeah he specifically refused the status of one who was not an eyewitness are you with me he was taught directly by the lord so uh, so whoever this author is it's not paul and there are, there have been all kinds of suggestions on this some of them somewhat rude, so I won't talk about them. But uh, yes, Linda? Might have been anybody. Yeah. 
Paul. Yeah, maybe somebody influenced by Paul, not necessarily a student by, of Paul, but I don't know. Um, so the, I don't know uh, who, the, who the author is. I think it's written before 70 AD, and it's probable that it would have been written before the Roman War began, uh, so um, sometime 60 to 63 BC or AD would be a good choice for a time. Or else it would have been written so long after the destruction of the temple that it was a dead letter, that even mentioning that was not even relevant. Um, and then to whom was it written? Don't know. <laughs> it appears, there are a couple of things we can say, it appears that they are, it's written to a people who know the writer, have a history with probably him. Uh, the, the literacy rate among men was actually higher in the first century than it was among women. And this author is incredibly literate. This author is a skillful orator. And that's one of the reasons Apollos has been suggested as an author. Why yes. is it called Hebrews then? Well, it's written for Jewish Christians. Um, uh, so so they're, they're people who, and I, I, even saying Jewish Christians is saying more than I want to say. Well, yeah, but they're Jewish. You know, they have a Jewish background. Yeah, yeah. The, the point I'd like, when I say Jewish Christians, it's a little more than I want to say. The author says nothing, and I'll, I'll justify this in weeks to come, all right? So if you get excited about this, just hang on. Says nothing that demands anything about new birth and justification for any of his readers. He has a, a sense of confidence about them. Look in chapter 6, um, verse 9. After that very difficult warning passage, we are persuaded about you, beloved, better things and things that, that relate to salvation, if indeed we speak this way. But then verse uh, 11, but we are ur urgent that each of you show the same zeal for the fulfillment of the hope to the end, so that you will not become dull. Do you remember in 5.11 and following, these people have become dull. So you, you will not become dull, but imitators of those who through faith and long-suffering inherit the promises. If you're going to inherit something, how much of it do you actually have now? Nothing. Nothing. Are you with me here? He's, he's got a confidence about a large number of the folks he's writing to, but there are some in the congregation, and folks, there's no external evidence by which to judge who those some are. Um, when I first started wrestling with Hebrews, a friend of mine, dear friend, um, who really set me on the track that I'm going to pursue through this study, said, Jim, have you been to heaven? Have you seen the book of life? If you have, what page is your name on? Yes? And if I can't even say that my name is without question, indubitably, 100%, absolutely sure, written in the book of life, then how do I know about you? He said, can you go lift up somebody's coattails and see the, the streak down the back that says this person is elect, born again, just fine. 
And you've all had this experience, have you not? That some of the people that you thought were the most likely to be children of God got into some of the most horrific situations. Am I right? Then you wonder about them, don't you? Don't you? Um, There was a situation in my family like this, and my grandmother said, oh, but he made a profession of faith when he was a boy. Yeah, but he lived unrepentant the rest of his life. Utterly unrepentant the rest of his life. Are you with me here? So... Yes. In verse 12 in chapter 6, he did a whole book. Well, I don't know what verse 12 is. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah, it is It is the uh, the great great exhortation of the whole book. I yeah. written in my margin that that was the key Yeah, the it is a key verse, certainly. Yeah. This is a manuscript of the book of, of portion of the book of, of Hebrews. Right here, if I can get my a marker going, it says pros, two. Hebrews. And this is from a period in, in uh, the second century BC or early third uh, century. This is a very early manuscript. Okay? Are you with me here? So, uh, from a very early period, this book has been called Hebrews. Now, uh, recipients, here are some things that we can say about them for sure. Um, they're a group that has a history with one another. They've been in persecution in the past. They're expecting persecution to come again. When, when Jan was in labor the first time, I was not permitted in the room. It was at Fort Darnell Army Hospital at Fort Hood. <clears throat> and she, how long? 16 hours, I think, she was in labor. It was horrible. Uh, I, well, well, honey, you, you don't know when the end is coming, and, and that makes 16 hours is a long time to be suffering anyway, and then you don't know when the end is coming. It's got to be horrible. She was, she was nervous before she went to the hospital. But when the second child was coming, she had hold of my hand, and she said, she was shaking, and it hurt my hand. She said, Jim, I can't do this again. There's a third one. That was the third one. The, 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 known, the, the known suffering of the past and the unknown suffering of the future, that unknown suffering of the future gets worse because of the known suffering in the past. Yes? Pardon? But you're committed at that point. That's right. Uh, uh, so, let's get into the book itself. Now, y'all hush. <laughs> uh, let's get into the book and uh, do what we can. I'd like to get through 2-4 today. So, first, verses 1-4, to four, the introduction to the book. This is a sermon. There is a fine commentary on the book of Hebrews as far as the structure of the book goes that I'd highly recommend it's in the NIV application commentary uh, series it looks kind of like a joke but it's, it's a the guy who wrote it is a guy named George Guthrie who was on the faculty at, uh, I think he still is at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee and he, he, did, uh, he did such a good job on his dissertation that a major com- two volume commentary on Hebrews 
devoted something like 70 pages of the introduction just going over his argument, talking about the structure, what kind of book this is, uh, what its structure is. So if you're interested in reading something in, in time to come, George Guthrie, G-U-T-H-R-I-E, um, the NIV application commentary. Um, and he says, this is, this, is, this is rhetoric of the first order. Folks, I had just been reading some Plato, and I came back to Hebrews, and I thought, well, this is outstanding Hebrew, Greek. This is amazing. So here we go. In many divisions and in many ways long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in the last of these days, he has spoken unto us in, do you have in his son or in the son? We almost need that in English. It's not a wrong translation. It just misses a point. It's a fine point. But it's, yeah, uh, but neither word, neither his nor the is in the text. It's simply in son. And what we're talking about here is the kind of revelation that has come. I, I am looking forward to meeting Isaiah. And I love Ezekiel. I want to go see. I want to sit and listen to Ezekiel for a while when we get home. <laughs> uh, um, but as much as I want to hear Ezekiel and Isaiah, I want to hear Jesus more. Yes? So on the one hand, we have all these bits and pieces. <laughs> 66 chapters is a bit. Ezekiel is the longest book in the Bible. More words than the book of Psalms has. All right? Oh. Ezekiel is a bit? Yeah, it's a bit. Because all Ezekiel had was a, was a vision of God. In Ezekiel chapter 1, he ransacks all the similes he can figure out to describe the vision he's, he's, he's seeing. And at the end, he said, this was the appearance of the likeness of the image of the Lord. <laughs> He, he, hasn't even, he hasn't even described the likeness, I'm sorry, the, the image. He, he hasn't even described the image of the likeness of the, of the uh, glory. He's only described the appearance of the image of the glory of the Lord. Are you with me here? So, so as good as that was to have God's authorized prophets speaking to Israel over the centuries, we've got a new kind of revelation now. It's a sun kind of revelation. So if you are taking notes, just say he has spoken unto us in a son kind of revelation. Um, Whom? And then there are five facts about Jesus. First, he appointed him heir of all things. Now, who is the son? What do we mean by son? Observe, by the way, that the name Jesus doesn't even show up until chapter 2. Yeah, so what does son of God mean? Huh? Yeah. Second person of the Trinity. What else could it mean? But the second person of the Trinity can't be an heir of anything. Why not? He's already He's he's God. He already owns it. You can't inherit what you own. Yes? Are you with me here? By right of your person, by by the, the necessity of your being, you own all things. But God has appointed him heir of all things. So son must mean something other than second member of the Trinity here. Second affirmation, through whom he also created the world. This son is the agent uh, through whom the father created the worlds. Third, 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, um, one of the great 19th century theologians, <clears throat> Dr. Crichton, called me to his office early in my years at, at the college, and he said, Jim, have you read Shed? And I said, well, no, sir, I can't understand Shed. I, I had a set years ago, and I traded it away because it couldn't make any sense out of it. He said, well, if you're going to teach Bible and theology at Mid-South Bible College, you've got to read Shed. And I don't oh, know. <laughs> but I picked up Shed and found a holist William G.T. Shed, 19th century theologian. And he uses an, a, 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 uh, an illustration to help us understand what this third affirmation about Jesus make, uh, is saying. Suppose you had somebody who had never seen a mirror. So the guy grew up in a desert, had never seen a mirror in his life. And he comes to your home, walks into the bathroom while you're shaving, and he says, what is that? And you will say, well, that's me. Yes? Well, I said a mirror. Yeah, well, okay. yeah, but he's, he's seeing you in both places. Who is, what is that? That's me. Well, how can you say that's me? It's obviously not you. It's just light reflecting off your body into the mirror and being reflected back by the mirror. Yes? But in the mirror, you see enough of the characteristics of yourself to be able to identify that person as yourself. Yes? When the father looks at the son, what does he see? Not just a reflection in this case. He sees all the same characteristics. So God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Yes? It's true of the Father. It's also true of the Son. The Father sees the same being, the same wisdom, the same power, the same justice in a, in a, in in the son that he sees in himself. And so he is the exact imprint of his character, of his nature. Fourth, he upholds the, in, the universe by the word of his power. You will undoubtedly think of Colossians 1 in this regard. Um, and he has made purification for sins. Isn't that interesting that that's one of the top seven things the author of Hebrews says about Jesus? made purification for sins. Sixth, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and you know all the, you've all heard this. Um, what's the significance of sitting down? The task is done. No priest, there was no place for a priest to sit down in the tabernacle because the task was never done. I sprinkle the blood this time, i got to go right back out and get some more blood to bring it in, sprinkle it again. So that in Malachi chapter 1, the priests despise the table of the Lord. Um, and then seventh, he has become superior to the angels. Now, why even start with this? When was the last time you worried greatly about angels? That's true. Yeah, they are. Uh, Galatians talks about this and other passages do too that, the, um, that God actually administered the, the Mosaic Covenant through angels so that angels were critical to early Judaism the Mosaic Covenant is the definition of what a Jew is are you with me? and so you cling to the Mosaic Covenant because that's what Israel is 
If Israel doesn't have the Mosaic Covenant, it's not Israel. <clears throat> or maybe not. Maybe if Israel doesn't have the Abrahamic Covenant, it's not Israel. But the, the Mosaic Covenant may not be that critical. But they've held on to it because they, they, they were um, uh, tempted so severely to abandon it. And so they've held on to it all these centuries. These are the seven affirmations that the author first makes about, uh, about the son. But he's more, he is, and, and look at verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 4, specific statement there. Having become so much greater than the angels as he has, as he has inherited a greater name than theirs. Well, what is the name that is greater than the name of the angels? Jesus. Amen. Jesus. <laughs> Turn to Philippians chapter 2. <laughs> the answer to all questions in a Bible class and among Christians is Jesus. That's right. Yeah. So, Philippians chapter 2. Um, verse 10. <clears throat> so, that, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow, things in the heavens, things in the earth, things under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is the name that's greater than all other names. Amen? Amen. <laughs> oh, no, but it's not greater than the name Yahweh. And I want you to understand, you know this, I suspect most of you know this, the word Jesus is just the Latin form of the Greek word, Greek name, that translates Joshua. And Joshua's my son-in-law, and he doesn't have the name that's greater than every other name. Okay? No son-in-law is of any consequence whatsoever, except to the extent that he gives you grandchildren. Amen? And treats your daughter right. Amen? Am I right? So, uh, so the name that's above every name in Philippians 2 is not Jesus. So I need to paraphrase verse 10. I'll show you what it is here very shortly. So that at the name that Jesus bears... In fact, look at verse 9. For this reason, God also has highly exalted him and bestowed uh, on him the name that is above every name. What is the name that's above every name? Well, verse 11. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, what does Lord signify? Uh, well, if you don't have Jesus as Lord of all, you don't have him as Savior at all. But that's not what Lord implies here. It is the full deity of Jesus. Go back to Romans um, 10. You know we had to get back to Romans at some point. Um, but in Romans uh, 10, a pair of verses that you know well. Um, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth... Jesus as Lord is the way um, uh, some of our translations read. I grew up, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. What does the word Lord mean in verse 9? Could be. But look at verse 13. In my Bible, verse 13 is in the same chapter as verse 9. Is it in yours? 
good. <laughs> uh, uh, in fact, let's pick it up at verse 12. Uh, For there is no difference, the same Lord of all. Uh, th- th- there's no difference between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord of all is rich to all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, do you have any kind of indication about something special on verse uh, 13? All right, what's that mean? Old Testament quotation. Where is it from? Joel 2.32. Yeah. <laughs> Good. We're not going to turn there. It's a minor prophet, and we'd have to take a break to find it. But uh, if you turn to Daniel, and it's two books left, or two books right. So depends on which translation you're reading. They, um, uh, how would you suspo- su- suppose... That the word Lord might be written in Joel 2.32? All caps. What does that mean? Yahweh. Yahweh. Then the name that's above every name is not Jesus. The name that's above every name is Yahweh. Are you with me here? So the first thing is I can't go to Jesus. That's not the name. That's back to Hebrews 1.5 or 1.4. The name that's greater than the name of the angels is not Jesus. Then what is the name that's greater than the angels? Well, it's in verse 5. And in fact, it's in verse 1, uh, 2 rather. In the last of these days, he has spoken unto us in Son. So look at verse 5. 4. Now notice, verse 5 starts, 4. Yes? So he's explaining what he's just said. Here is a series of quotations. They're actually... Um, um, what is that, six? There are seven quotations in this passage, but only six of them are directly about Jesus. One of them is about the angels. But these are the quotations. We're going to go through them uh, one by one as we go, and we're going to go fairly quickly, but um, uh, you can get some other work on that at some point. Um, and then in 2, 1 to 4, we're going to have the first warning section with a statement after it that talks about the... Uh, Uh, indeed before it, that talks about people who are going to inherit salvation. These are some issues we've got to deal with. We've got these these quotations. We have the first warning passage that we have to deal with, and this is is where we're going to start raising the issues of the book. In verse 14 of chapter 1, the angels are sent out to serve those who are about to inherit salvation. About to inherit salvation? Aren't you born again? Well, now I'm not so sure. <laughs> I haven't been to heaven. I haven't seen the book of life. Don't know which column it's on. Uh, and then also in chapter 2, verse 5, the author thinks he's talking about something. Look over in 2.5. Not to angels did he subject the world which is coming, about which we are talking. It doesn't look like In fact, for years I studied chapter 1 without noticing the significance of chapter 2, verse 5. I have to read read chapter 1 in light of the conclusion the author is going to draw in 2, 5. So whatever I read in these quotations, chapter 1, I have to end up at this conclusion. Um, So it forces us to rethink the Old Testament quotations in chapter 1. Let's go back and do that. Chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, 
you are my son. This day I have begotten you, or again, I will be his father. He will be my son. So what is the name? Let's, let's paraphrase that just slightly. It's open. This is an option for us with, the, with what's in the text here. What is the title that's more excellent than the title of the, of the angels? Well, it's son. Uh, subsequently, the author is going to say that the son is greater than Moses as the one who makes a house is greater than the, one, than, than the house itself. You remember this? Yeah? Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus was faithful as a son over God's house. Are you with me here? So, so establishing his sonship is critical. But what are we establishing? Well, you see on the screen that I have a quotation from Psalm 2-7 and from 2 Samuel uh, 7-14. Psalm 2-7, what does it mean? Well, let me just give you a quick run-through on Psalm 2. <clears throat> it, it's it's uh, 12 verses. It divides into th- uh, four sets of three verses. And at each point, somebody speaks. So in chapter in, in Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3, why do the nations rage? Why do the, the peoples make plots that must fail? The kings of the earth have gathered together. The, the princes have, have established themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let's break their bonds. Let's cast their fetters from us. Then in the second three verses, the Lord speaks. Then he who sits in the heavens will laugh. He will hold them in derision. He will frighten them in, when he speaks and terrify them as he makes the statement. As for me, I have established my king on my holy hill, Zion. <coughs> So what is the sun in? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so the next three, li- three lines, three verses, the poet speaks. And in Acts 4, we find out David wrote Psalm 2. So David says, I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your, as your personal treasure. Um, you will shepherd them with a rod of iron. You will break them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You know this passage, I suppose, do you? Yes, no. Uh, then in the final three verses, the poet addresses the nations. Remember chapter 1, or verse 1, starts with the nations. The last four, return to the nations. Therefore be warned, O Kings, be, uh, be instructed, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun, lest he grow angry in the way, and you perish while you are coming. For his wrath blazes up in an instant. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. As I go through that, that's the message of Psalm 2, of, of, of Hebrews. Are you with me here so far? So, so what, is the, what does the title son mean for Jesus. Well, it means first royalty and specific Davidic royalty uh, and the promise of world rule. Do you remember chapter 12 we looked at just a few minutes ago? 
um, this world is going to be shaken. We're, we're waiting for an unshakable kingdom, he says in the passage in the verse that follows where we stopped reading. And a promise of destruction to the enemies of God's anointed. If I in any way turn out to be an enemy of God's anointed, I'm in trouble. So I must do obeisance to the Son. Yes or no? Yes? Are you with me? Okay. That's, the Son is God's anointed. Yeah. And we didn't even look at Second Samuel 7, but you know that Psalm, uh, Psalm 2 has quoted from that that passage anyway it's probably actually finally then there will be eternal rule uh, for the son the second let me uh, uh, there are two other passages that are critical in this regard one is Romans 1 3 and 4 and the other is Acts 13 32 and 33 that one is really important do you know the day of the begetting of the son it's in Acts 13 32 and 33 He has fulfilled this promise to us, their children, by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, as it is written, uh, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. The resurrection day is is the coronation day for Jesus as king. He's born to be king, yes? So was Prince Charles. (laughs) <laughs> poor guy <laughs> we, Jan watched a program about Elizabeth yesterday and, and I thought all I could do through that thing is sitting there looking at, at Charles in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the video wondering what is he thinking you know, when, is, when is this old gal going to kick off so, but, but here, is, here is Charles who's born to be king and William who's born to be king not king yet But they're born to be king, yes? So the coronation day of Jesus is the resurrection day, amazingly enough. We're waiting. He's on his father's throne waiting till his enemies be made the footstool of his feet. So so he hasn't taken all of his power yet. He has the the ability to act. He's not been given full reign to exercise his rule yet. Second quotation, Hebrews 1.6, uh, comes from, you'll, you'll look in Deuteronomy 32.43 and not find it, but uh, the Septuagint has it, and there are indications in the Dead Sea Scrolls that this uh, verse actually shows up there in Deuteronomy 32.43. Let all the angels, let's see, um, um, when again he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Um, so what are we to learn from this? Psalm 97.7 has a similar statement. God's eschatological coming to destroy his enemies. Deuteronomy 32 is, is the history of Israel written before it occurred. So you, you find similar passages in Psalm 78. Uh, Psalm 78 talks about good things that God does. Deuteronomy 32 does too. And then how Israel rebels and God... God deals with that and then does more good things and they rebel and they do he does more good things and he rebels until there comes a point when in Deuteronomy 32 he sees that they have no strength and there is no one to help and then he goes to action to bring salvation to Israel um, and when he goes into action to, to bring salvation to Israel it's through destroying their enemies 
This, this sounds kind of harsh to us, but you have to remember, folks, if God's going to save this world, he's got to get rid of anyone who is in, in open rebellion against himself. It's the only way he can do it. So, judgment comes first, and then salvation. Yeah. But there are people that, that we see every day who are, who are in open rebellion too, but don't look like it. Remembering, folks, the worst sin, Psalm was it, 10, 4, the worst sin is to, is to ignore God. Just treat him as if he's irrelevant. It's better to be an open enemy because you know you're an enemy. When, when you're just ignoring God, you don't think of yourself as an enemy, but God thinks of you that way. God is not a Democrat. Oh, ne- neither is he a Republican. And he's if not. He's an enemy. You are at least making something of him. If you yeah. ignore him, you make yeah. nothing yeah. of him. My, my point is to say, though, that I don't get to choose what being a friend of God is. God's already decided. He's a king, he's an absolute monarch. And he has already decided what friendship is. And if you haven't adopted his definition, then you're an enemy. No matter how much you might speak well of him. And speaking well of him is, is worse because you, you don't speak well enough. Well, we'll talk about that on another occasion. Yeah, not here, not in this class. Uh, but there's a Deuteronomy 32. Folks, do you notice that that there are five books that open the Bible. Genesis, that starts with creation, yes? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that closes with the salvation of the, of the people of Israel. Blessing for Israel. Genesis 1 starts with blessing for the human race. Deuteronomy 32, 33 ends with the hope of blessing for Israel. wonder if that's significant. We come round in a good story. Frequently, you come. The end of the story is is related to the beginning, but it's often the inverse of the beginning. Um, so there's a fulfillment of the plan to bless. Because, folks, right after he destroys in Deuteronomy 32, go read this sometime soon. Right after he gives the promise to destroy the enemies, he calls the nations to rejoice and praise him. That doesn't make a lot of sense unless you understand that when when God brings salvation, it comes to Israel first, and then it goes out to the nations. And when Israel is being blessed, the next step is to bless all the nations. Does this make sense to you? Read Psalm 117. Two verses, you can handle it. Uh, He calls all the nations to rejoice because of God's vengeance on Israel's enemies. And uh, God will make atonement for his land and people in Deuteronomy 32. Is that significant? Then Hebrews 1.7 is a quotation about the, the angels. Are they not all? I'm sorry, that's 14. Um, but to the angels, he says, he, he is the one who made his angels. I think I should read this out of winds and his, and his, or his messengers out of winds and his uh, ministers out of flames of fire. So what, what are the angels really? What, as powerful as they are, what are they really? They're insubstantial. Yes, they have no permanent being. <laughs> so, so you really want to honor the angels 
as a Jew. Uh, the role of the nature of their, their nature is they're made of winds and fire, and their role is servants and messengers. Um, 1, 8, and 9 quotes Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, your God, has, uh, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. That turns out it's a wedding song of all things. There's a, later in the psalm, there's a, uh, there's a passage talking to the bride and how she's to think, forget her father's house and, and realize that the king has set his affections on her. Now, this king, who is he? Don't know. I don't have, I'm just kind of like the like book of Hebrews. I don't know who the king is. But he is called something very important there in, he, in Psalm 45, 7. Your throne, O God. God? What is he doing calling a human God? Well, you know, you know John 10. Yes? You, you've read John 10, have you not? Um, now I can't quote it. Hear me. Yeah, he quotes from Psalm eighty-two six, and he says he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the and the scripture cannot be broken. How can you say of him whom the Father has sanctified, you are um, sinning because you called yourself? I called myself the Son of God. So the 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 king. The king who rules may rightly be called God. How can that be? Because the king does some of the functions of God. Elohim is a word in Greek, in Hebrew, that applies to anybody that's above the, the normal human sphere. So angel, angels are called Elohim. So in Psalm 8, that we'll see in chapter 2 later, um, in Psalm 8, uh, you have made him a little lower than the angels, uh, Hebrews 2 says. Uh, you will read in Psalm 8 itself, you've made him a little lower than God. You've crowned him with, with, with glory and honor. But anybody who does any of the major functions of God may be called Elohim. So if the, if the son is a king, is a Davidic king, with the right to rule the whole earth, then he has rightly the title Elohim. Yes, there's something really strange in this passage. Look at it again with me. Verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The, the, the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. For this reason, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. This is a God who has a God. What kind of God has a God? <laughs> well, this is a king who can rightly be called God, but he, he has a God, and so remember at the resurrection, Jesus said to the women, go and tell my brothers and Peter, I have gone to my God and their God, my father and their father. Remember this? So in verse 7 of Psalm 45, therefore the first use of the word God refers to who? The king. The king. Yeah. Not, not then in verse, Jesus, the that's right. The king. Uh huh. But this is now being applied to Jesus. How can it be applied to Jesus? He's a man. Well, he's a man, but he's also the Davidic heir. We've established that in Psalm 
2 and 2 Samuel 7. We establish that because we also have the Gospels that traces his genealogy through David, yes? So he's the, he's the one who is the heir of the Davidic covenant. And if he's the heir of the Davidic covenant, he may be rightly called Elohim. Now it gets real tough with verse 10. Um, um, by the way, the word partners is going to be really important later. But for now, I will just say we'll have to come back here later when we get into this. In verses 10 to 12, I have a quotation from Psalm 102. I have struggled with Psalm 102 for 30 years. This week, I think I got the first light on it I've had in 30 years. What is going on with Psalm 102? Um, You from of old, Lord. The word is not actually in, the word Lord is not actually in verse 25 in Psalm 102. But the psalm is itself a prayer to God. And, it's, and, and the initial statement, O Lord, is O Yahweh. So you from of old, Yahweh, uh, uh, founded the, the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish. You remain. And all of them will grow old like a garment. And like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they shall be changed. But you are the same and your years will never fail. And I've, I've made it my purpose in studying the use of the Old Testament and the New to try to figure out how the New Testament writer logically arrived at the conclusions that he did. And some say, well, he had the Holy Spirit. But folks, these, that, that wouldn't have convinced a Jew in the first century. I have the Holy Spirit. Well, good. They wouldn't believe that any more than they believed Mary about the birth of her baby. Yes or no? Right, So I've got to have an interpretation of Psalm 102 that allows this to work. Psalm 102 comes right after Psalm 101. <laughs> and Psalm 101 is, is a really unusual psalm. It is widely held to be something like a vow that the Davidic kings would take at the beginning of their reigns or at the renewal of their kingdoms. And so they, they commit themselves to rule injustice and to, and to root evil out of, the, out, of the, uh, uh, out of the world. That's significant because, so you've got a Davidic kingship psalm immediately before Psalm 102. Yes? Psalm 103, the, 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 the next psalm is a psalm that probably, given the content of it, is almost surely a Davidic psalm. Uh, that is a Davidic kingship psalm. You know the psalm, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. You remember this? Uh, some of our favorite psalm- verses are from the psalm. He has, he has uh, separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Yes? Um, psalm 103. Well, how, how can David, who could write a psalm like this? What kind of brazen person would at the end of Psalm 103 call on the angels to start praising God? And then Psalm 104 is a psalm about the kingship of God over the creation. He's made everything perfectly um, ordered. It's a beautiful, well-watered garden. There's only one disorderly thing in it. It's the most unusual psalm. 
for its kind. It's, it, it's the only of these, this kind of psalm that has a petition in it. And it's at the very end. Destroy the wicked, O Lord, from the world. Well, now, that kind of sounds like Psalm 101. What does, what, what does a, a, a Davidic king do? Well, he pleads with God and celebrates God. And he rules over the world and evicts wicked, wickedness from it. Yes? Yeah. The point I'm trying to get at is Psalm 102 is right in the middle of these four psalms. So, so it surely is, a, is, again, a Davidic kingship psalm. And if that's what it is, then the one who can be called God turns out to be one who founded the world uh, at the beginning. What, Jen? What? Yeah, he celebrates, he rules, he uh, That's, I don't remember. Uh, pleads with, he pleads with God. I'm doing this off the top of my head, so... <laughs> Uh, then, then finally, so Yahweh, we have Yahweh's eternal enthronement, which we already established in Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. And the nations fear his name, which we already established in Psalm 2. Um, the Gentiles worship God in Zion, which is exactly what they're coming to do at the end of, the, uh, of Psalm 2. And their confidence of God is in God's future salvation of Zion which is what the Davidic kingship is about, then who is this Jesus? Well, the final quotation, here's the prayers of the persecuted, final quotation is from Psalm 110.1. So I read in verse 13, To which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet? Psalm 110 is going to be critical in the book of Hebrews. He's going to return to it in chapter 5. Because there are two crucial statements. One is the kingship. The Lord said to my master, sit at my right. Yahweh said to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. You know what Jesus did with that. Whose son is Messiah? It's David's. Well, David was a prophet. Then, but, but how can he say about his son what he says in Psalm 110? The Lord said to my master. How can the son be the master? So Isaiah uh, 11, you have the root of Jesse. I'm sorry, the shoot of Jesse at the beginning and the root of Jesse at the end. How can the same one be root and shoot? Are you with me? <laughs> so, so, so the point here is that this one who is Jesus... Let's, let's look at it this way. In Hebrews 1.5, Jesus is given the title Son, which is his royal title, made clearer in verses 6 to 9. Then, as king, he receives the title Elohim in verses 8 and 9, a title ascribed to him as God's representative on earth. Finally, in Psalm 102, he is called Kyrios, Yahweh, who is the addressee of the petition of Psalm 102. Or to say it a little bit differently, the more excellent name is the Son. The Son is the King who has the right to rule the whole earth, who is worshipped by the angels, his servants, who as God rules in justice, never changes, 
and sits enthroned at God's right hand, waiting for his enemies to be subjected to himself. Now, all that we believe, but why do we even raise the issues? Well, let's pick up one more verse in chapter 1, then we'll go quickly to the warning section in chapter 2. The final statement about the angels is even more demeaning to them. They are not merely the son's servants. They're our servants. So, are they not all serving a ministering spirit sent out to serve those who are or who will inherit? I asked you the last two Sundays, how much can you spend of what you're about to inherit? Nothing. Then, if you're about to inherit salvation, you probably don't have it yet. Are you with me here? Well, aren't these people born again? I don't know. Probably most of them. But the author doesn't assume that. He assumes that they're about to inherit salvation. You've got to get over your Calvinistic or Arminian presuppositions at this point. Um, You're equating salvation to justification. Uh, yeah, that's the way all, all evangelicals think. Because, yeah, yeah, evangelicals, if you ask any evangelical about salvation, they think of new birth or about uh, justification because the only people who wrote anything in the Bible are John and Paul. Nobody else wrote anything. They wrote everything. So all the definitions that John and Paul have fit with everybody else. But that doesn't work. It certainly doesn't work here. So i got to be able to figure out what's going on, and we will. We'll begin to unpack this next week. But the warning section now um, is about neglecting so great salvation. Folks, it's not even about getting involved in gross sin or even minor sin. It's, get, it's about neglecting so great salvation. So let's look at it. For this reason, it's all the more necessary for us to pay close attention to the things that, that have been reported so that we do not, what do you have? Drift away. Drift away. Uh, flying into India the first time, we flew out of Colombo, Sri Lanka, uh, going over into India, and um, my friend was in the, in the uh, window seat. He said, Jim, Jim, look over here. You've got to see this. Right outside the harbor of Colombo, a major har- uh, port city, right outside the harbor, uh, the harbor was an old freighter that was lying on its side in the, in the surf, rusting. And he said, they drifted away. They got off course and missed, missed the anchorage. Are you with me? Yeah. So um, our, our big problem is not going to be getting involved in gross sin or even minor sin. It's not going to be um, uh, some kind of a major disobedience. It's going to be something else. So verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Uh, For if, verse 2, for if if the word spoken by angels was established in every disobedience and every Uh, transgression received a warranted reward how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard the Holy Spirit uh, 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 God himself bearing testimony with signs and wonders and various uh, miracles and dispersings of the Holy Spirit according to his will 
If it was important to listen to Isaiah and Ezekiel, how important is it to listen to the message spoken by Jesus? Um, If it was important to listen to Moses, to a covenant mediated by angels, how important is it to listen to the word of the Son who is God seated at the Father's right hand? So this is what this book's going to be about. Now, let me throw in verse 5 just quickly here. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Then what's the point of these quotations? Let's go back over them quickly. Verse uh, three, verse uh, 5, you are my son. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your personal treasure. Yes? Uh, Let's go to the Deuteronomy 32 passage. What did we say about it? Well, it's, it's anticipating a time when the enemies will have completely the upper hand over Israel. Israel will have no strength and no helper. Then God goes to work judging their enemies, blessing them, and bringing salvation to all the earth. To all the... What did I just say? Earth. Earth. Hmm. There's a world that's coming. I wonder if that's salvation. Hmm. That's interesting. Folks, I have to have a doctrine in which Israel is central in the plan of God. I don't have to have a premillennial doctrine. But I have to have a doctrine in which Israel is central, not as church, but as Israel, to the plan of God. If God does not keep his promises to Israel, I don't have any guarantee that he will keep his promises to me so I could have as, as one of my professors has an amillennial doctrine I, I almost won't go to the dentist because of having to say ah it just <laughs> troubles me but uh, he believes in, a, in an amillennial return of Christ but Israel as Israel not as church will be saved and receive all the promises made to the fathers God covenanted on oath And folks, the Jesus that we're reading about is the Jesus who's going to bring all that to pass. So here in these quotations, the author signals to us in 2.5 that he's actually talking about the world to come. He's not merely talking about the supremacy of Jesus. That would be great enough. But he's talking about more. Not only the supremacy of the person of Jesus, but the, the supreme work that he's doing, bringing to an end, bringing to a climax, all of history. Yeah. Because the earth and the heavens, mm-hmm. they will perish. Yeah. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up. Mm-hmm. Again. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the end of the present order. A new heaven. Yeah, we look for a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. So, the earth is, is you know, I've heard Genesis being talked about salvation, that, that, that by creating the earth, yeah. It got destroyed because of man's sin. Yeah. So the new heavens and new earth, well, the earth is growing now. Yeah. So the new heavens and new earth is complete salvation for uh-huh. just the creation of earth. Not just for the creation of the earth, but the salvation of everybody that is associated with the earth. Wow. So our whole hope, and I'll, I'll make this argument in chapter 8 later, 
uh, the new covenant is not yet fully in force. It will not be in force until there is no more need for evangelism. Uh, there shall be no more be each one's uh, telling his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. When is that? Fred, it's after nine, 8.30. Let me stop. And then, yeah. 20 minutes to 8? Oh, it is. Oh, oh, well, yay. I was hurrying. We can go a little farther, and that'll, that'll take some pressure off later. Well, yay. Well, it's all right. What do you want to go back to, Jen? Well, everything. Everything. Throughout Hebrews, we heard later in Hebrews, especially Old Covenant and New Covenant, we always think of Old Testament and New Testament as in the Bible. Yeah. Does the current term in Hebrew, Old Covenant and New Covenant, mean the same thing? No. That's different. Yeah. It is different. Go to, um, back to 1-7, Hebrews 1-7. Okay, because I didn't get that. Okay. You got to learn to, oh, you left your phone at home, didn't you? Jen? You left your phone at home? Okay. Well, they're taking pictures of these things, so. <laughs> uh, oh, various people around. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on a little farther then. In fact, let's let's take some time for questions. Yeah. Go ahead, Kate. Is this about heirship, our inheritance, or is that where we're headed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Inheritance. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we'll we'll say more as we go. We, okay. There'll come a point where it'll all open up and it'll begin to make perfect sense. Okay. Linda. Now one eight. L- Linda had her hand up, honey. Okay. One eight. Okay. Look. Now go ahead, Linda. Okay. Uh, so I understand what you're saying about the ultimate salvation. That's the second coming. Mm-hmm. Well, at the end time. Yeah. So, so what is our, quote, salvation today? We have assurance, <laughs> but we're not supposed to call it salvation. <laughs> I, I went back and restudied this when we were doing John uh, several months ago. And uh, uh, it turns out that about half of the references in the New Testament to save, salvation, saving, about half of them are uh, references to new birth and justification. But the other half talk about other aspects of salvation. Let me do a chart at this point. Um, yeah, there, that's involved. Does anybody have these dates? These are the dates that we're not going to have class. So uh, June 15th, 22nd, and July 13th. Pardon? They, they don't work very well. Um, You may have been taught, rightly so, that there are three phases to to the saving work of God uh, related specifically to the work of Jesus. One is um, 
You can't see that? Well, the, the green, she had to really struggle to get it to, to write well. Okay. Um. That's worse. I thought so. Yeah. I think somebody's already gone to get them. Um, there are three phases to, our, to God's saving work that we usually talk about as salvation. Thank you. Thank you, Gene. Oh, yeah. That's better. The initial phase, the progressive phase, and the final phase. Um, the initial phase we usually call new birth and justification. The progressive phase we call sanctification. Unfortunately, we call it that because it almost there are only a very few places where sanctification actually means this, uh, what we usually mean by sanctification. What do we mean by it? Getting more like Jesus. Yeah, getting more like Jesus. Uh, then there's a final phase that we would call glorification. Um, <clears throat> you can't grow in life unless you're born. <laughs> yes? Yeah. When you're born, uh, <laughs> Think about the way we have done evangelism in our churches in the past. Uh, we go out and make a baby, and then hope somebody will come along and take care of him, right? Go out and make another baby. Amen? So let's suppose you had a baby at the hospital, and you got so excited about it, and everybody got together and celebrated the birth of this new baby. And you were so happy, so excited about having this new baby, you went home, left the baby at the hospital went home and started working on another baby. What, what would anybody think about that? You're crazy. And, and they probably, eventually, you might be in jail. Yes? But the point is that new birth starts life. And life shows itself. I, my, my family has always said, I walk like my grandfather. He died when I was 10. I don't remember ever paying attention to how he walked. How come I walked like my grandfather? I have his frame. Are you with me? Yes? So, and my son coughs like I cough. One day we were heading upstairs to bed, and, and our son said something as we were heading up the stairs. And I thought, I'm hearing my own voice coming back at me. This is spooky. Uh, the, um, uh, the point is, though, that, that the nature of the life shows itself in the growth. Yes? Are you with me? Right? But there is a goal. It's not just to reach adulthood. It's to, to reach the capacity to, to fulfill all the purpose of God for yourself. Does that, does that make sense to you? So glorification is where we reach the, the full capacity of serving God. Uh, that God built into us from the beginning. 
Um, what I find in the New Testament is that uh, Paul and John emphasize, they don't ignore the other side, but they emphasize this side of the chart. Um, Matthew, um, Peter, and Hebrews emphasize this side of the chart. Um, Matthew and Hebrews basically ignore the other side, the left side of the chart. Peter includes all three, but he only calls this salvation. Look at Hebrews, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1. We've done this on several occasions. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Um, Bless James. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to the greatness of his compassion has begotten us again. So new birth, yes? He's begotten us again to a living hope. Yes? Um, uh, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for an inheritance uh, incorruptible, so future, initial, or rather final phase of salvation, to a living hope, um, to an inheritance indestructible, undefiled, uh, does not fade away, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded by the power of God through faith to a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Are you with me here? So he has all three. It's one of the very rare places where you have all three aspects of God's saving work in the same passage. But for Peter, this is salvation. That's not. Okay? For Paul and John, that's salvation. Fred? I have another question on chapter on verse 8. Okay. Um, where he says, uh, You are thrilled, O God, and endures forever. Or no, it's really verse 9. That you love justice and evil. Therefore, God, oh God, your God. I, I thought I heard uh, F. Lewis Johnson said, therefore, Yahweh. Yeah. He refers to God, uh, Yahweh, your God. Yeah, I think that's right. Called the son Yahweh. Yeah, right? no, uh, there in, in verse... Uh, uh, I can't find it now. Verse 9, uh, for this reason, God, your God, has, a, has anointed you. That, that probably is Yahweh there. If there's an odd piece of information going on, if you're really desperate for it, I can describe it, but it, it probably won't substantially advance our discussion this evening. But uh, the, the person called God in verse 8 is distinguished from your God. In verse 9. Yes? So as I said to you, this God has a God. Now we've got a hierarchy of gods? Or is it rather that Jesus, who talked about my God and your God, my Father and your Father, uh, that Jesus as a man can say these things and they're perfectly legitimate? Um, other questions, yes, Jean? Separation from the penalty of sin first, then the power of sin second, and then the presence of sin the third. That's the process we're going through. 
in, in, in yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No penalty. And then as we work through progression, we're separated from the power that mm -hmm. sin has over us. Mm -hmm. And then we move into the glorification and we'll be separated from the presence of sin. Yeah. There's a lot more to it, but that, yeah, that's a good way to talk about it, too. Yeah. Is there any significance to the fact that Matthew was written to Jews, mm -hmm. Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and Hebrew is to the Jews, and they all focus on the glorification? Probably. It's all like a yeah. Jewish type of thing. Yeah. Let me go back to the early point that I was starting to make. About half of the... Ah. About, about half of the references to salvation are the word save, the word sa um, uh, salvation, and all the related terms to these two. About half of them uh, are used for this phase of salvation. The other half, approximately, refer to these two in one way or another. When, as an evangelical, then, I read the Bible only with Paul and John, I can't hear a great part of the Bible. So I've got to get free of saying, well, Paul said, well, that's true, Paul did say that, but Paul wasn't the only person there who ever wrote anything. He didn't write Luke. <laughs> Luke and Acts is actually longer than all of Paul's letters put together. So... Um, We've got three Gospels, or four Gospels, and then Acts. That's well over uh, half the Bible, half the New Testament. And if that's the case, as important as Paul is, and folks, I am excited about Paul. I've studied Paul a great part of my life. <coughs> He's not the only biblical author, and my task is to find out what the Bible meant, not what I think it ought to mean. <laughs> then how do we get references from, from Paul and John and from Peter? There are really very few references to sanctification that it, where the word appears, where it, where it means some kind of a spiritual betterment program. We'll talk about that uh, next week. Growing. Pardon? Does it mean growing? No. No? No. Uh, look, look in chapter 2, uh, verse 10. Of Hebrews? Yes, Hebrews 2.10. It was fitting for him through whom are all things, or for whose sake are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the chief, the captain of their salvation, perfect <laughs> through sufferings, uh, or perhaps mature. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he was not ashamed to call them brothers, and so on. Uh, but I have this word sanctify used twice. We've assumed that that means that he's sanctifying, he's making us more, more Christ-like, and we are becoming more Christ-like, and so those who hold to a lordship salvation would use a passage like this to say, if you don't have growing righteousness in your life, you're probably not saved. Um, but David committed adultery and murder, premeditated murder, I don't think any of us would have said David was a lost man. He repented. That's a key quality in uh, people who are genuinely saved. They're repentant people. 
It's not that they're always feeling bad for their sin. It's that they're always seeking to, to be different. I realize that I have shortcomings. I want to deal with them. I don't want to just stay where I am. I want to go on. What, Jim? Oh, I just couldn't help but think of Kelly. Oh, yeah, her, her niece. Yes? So, since we as fallen people and yet believers can't judge whether or not someone else is saved, as you said at the very beginning, yeah. are you to relate to those who act as though there's a question about their salvation as if they're not saved for the sake of the gospel so that they could become saved? Yeah, we'll, we'll start answering. Yeah, we'll start answering that question very soon. I don't. I don't know whether it'll be next week or not. It might be the following time that we get together, but we'll start answering that pretty soon. Let me do another chart in light of your question. I think it's a pretty important one, and I have so few charts. I got to use them when I can. So. <laughs> Why do people join the church? Lots of reasons. Yeah, give me some. Fellowship. 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 Worship. Worship. Participation. Mm -hmm. For salvation. For, sometimes for salvation. Security. Hmm? What was that? Security? Security. Yeah. Sometimes people join the church because they're impressed with what's going on. Would that be true? Yes. There, are, there are churches that are so vibrant spiritually. People are attracted to them. Uh, this this uh, chart is, to my mind, extremely important. Uh, since we're dealing primarily with Jewish readers in this book, going to call it the Jewish world, Jewish world on the one side and on the other side is, and I've chosen this intentionally, instead of saying church because that has too many connotations for us, are you aware that there is no word in the, in the New Testament that means church? <laughs> the, the word, if you look it up in the, in the dictionary, you will find that it's any religious group and its place of gathering or its group, uh, including the Church of Satan. Yes? So the word ekklesia in Greek means uh, assembly. Um, so instead of calling it church, I want to call it the community of Messiah. And in the community of Messiah, there are two groups. Um, and this is true. I think, I think you'll have to say this is true of every place where Jesus' name is honored. There are those who are uh, not born again. There are those who are born again. Pardon? Wheat and tares. Wheat and tares. How do you tell the difference? You can't. You well, can't. How can you say that completely? Because a lot of those who are not born again, some of them are young and they're not ready. 
-hmm. Yeah, but there, but 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 it doesn't matter. For for the purpose of this chart, it does, the chart it doesn't matter. What what I'm saying is, when I look at people who are in the community of the Messiah, look Sunday morning across the uh, the the congregation. How can you tell whether those people are born again or not? And, you, and the answer is you can't. This is the problem. You, you can't even tell about the leaders. We, we have had experiences in this congregation just in the last few years where a major leader was taking part in an ordination one Sunday and the next Sunday was dismissed from the church for, for having an affair. Are you with me here? <laughs> and, and a beloved leader in our church. Am I right? So how can you tell? You can't even tell about the leaders. And this is where it's going to get really important. Uh, in chapter 3, we're going to come back to this chart and to this very discussion again. But, uh, but, but uh, since I can't tell who's, who's who or where, I'm going to define three people, A, B, and C, as, as having been, this one's clearly born again. I know this because I've been to heaven. I've seen the place where C's name is. <laughs> and I have, from the Jewish world, something happening. From the Jewish world, persecution is coming to A and B and C. Okay? What happens? Well, it depends on uh, some things that we're going to say in chapter 3. Um, but from other passages of Scripture, I can say what will happen to C. C will survive the persecution. By that I mean C's faith will survive. Yes? The person himself, herself, may in fact be um, subjected to death. But their faith will survive. But what about A and B? What happens? Uh, they, either one could become Z. I learned through two important experiences in my life. First, our firstborn child. Um, I thought, there's something wrong with me. Jan has an immediate affection for this child. I feel nothing for her. What is wrong with me? Do I have, am I like those people that Paul writes about who lack natural affection, what's wrong with me? There's something dreadfully wrong. A few months into her life, she started getting ear infections. And you know what happens with ear infections. The temperature skyrockets, scares you to death. They don't give you a, an operator's manual with children. Where's the on-off switch? So, so you'd rush into the hospital and so on. Jen, walked her for a couple of nights and the, the, the next night she said, Jim I can't possibly stay up with Jill tonight. Would you, would you take care of her? Well, I've got to be standing in formation tomorrow morning to protect our country <laughs> at Fort Hood <laughs> from invaders. <laughs> and the only answer available was of course. And I walked her all night and, you know, it wasn't long before I started feeling affection for her. The other experience was same time period. It was basic training in the Army. Uh, there were 200 men in my company, and uh, two of them, Clyburn, who, by the way, was Van Clyburn's cousin, of all things, and then uh, Barlene and I made good friends. And 
I tell you, I was astonished at how much affection I had for those guys after eight weeks in basic training. And when I left to go home for two weeks with my new wife, we were married nine days when I reported to the Army. And I had two weeks leave to go home with her. I was excited to go home with her, but I was weeping to, to leave Clyburn and Barley. And from those two experiences, I think I learned that one of the ways you gain um, affection for someone is suffer with them. Um, and uh, that's going to be critical to what's going to, what's, what this chart is going to go to as we go. But this whole issue of inheritance, okay, as you've, as you've already observed, how do you get to the inheritance is going to be the question that Hebrews is addressing. Well, let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for this evening's opportunity to study. Father, there's a lot that we've talked about. It's gone by quickly. Help us to go back and relay foundations, rethink issues, come to understand what you're doing in your word and then what you're doing in our lives. Father, this is not an academic study. Our lives depend upon what you tell us in your word and, and, and not least in this book of Hebrews. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. For Jesus' sake we pray.